following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, we are still going through Jude, but we're going to make a turn this morning. Jude starts off on this positive note, and then very quickly he moves into this discussion of what false teachers were doing to the church. So an awful lot of Jude is this kind of somber warning about what to look out for. Well, this Sunday, we're going to make the turn. Jude's heading in toward kind of a big finish here where he is talking about what it looks like to live as Christians in church community in a way that builds our faith, builds others, and can serve as kind of a bulwark against the types of things that can creep into church and undo us. So we're going to begin in verse 14 of Jude this morning. The first part, he's just kind of summarizing what he's been saying so far. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and that's only noted because there was more than one Enoch in the Old Testament. He prophesied about them, them being the false teachers. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires, and they boast about themselves, and they flatter others with empty words for their own advantage. That's a pretty good summary of what the previous 10 verses were talking about. And notice, he referenced both the words and the deeds of these teachers. He mentions ungodly acts, so there's something that's happening in their life, and he mentions defiant words, so there's something about what they're saying. They're at least consistent, just consistent in a bad way. And here begins the turn. But, dear friends, and one reason I just define that as the turn is he's reminding his audience, as much as he has been cautioning them and maybe even kind of admonishing them for what they were allowing to happen in the church, he loves them. Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, or they warned you, in the last times there will be scoffers, once again the words, and they will follow, once again, the deeds, their ungodly desires. And these are people who will divide you because they'll follow mere natural instincts and they don't have the spirit. So note, we've been in the last times for 2,000 years. Jude tells his audience in the first century, you were warned by the apostles. In the last times, you will face these kind of challenges. And one of the big things about these challenges is that they will divide the church. It's not just going to be something that's going to have an impact on us individually, it's going to have an impact on us corporately. And then he says once again, but you, dear friends, by building yourself up in the object of your most holy faith, by, by praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. So that's the real turn. This was a letter that spent a lot of time talking about the disease that had crept into the church, and now here's the cure. And three things stand out to me. We as followers of Jesus, we're called to use different and holy words. That is, we are to speak that which builds on the truth of the foundation of Jesus. Second, we follow a different and a holy path. So it's righteousness that unites us. So God gives us this righteousness 
But then the idea of walking in the path of righteousness simply means we recognize what Jesus has said is right, and we do those things. And then finally, we have a different and holy hope, and that is the mercy of Christ that stretches into eternity. So we're going to look at that verse in a little more detail this morning, starting with how to keep yourself in God's love. So really, this isn't the first point. The three points follow this, but kind of the umbrella is how to keep yourself in God's love. And I just want to clarify what Jude is saying when he says this. He is not telling believers that they have to keep themselves saved. He begins the letter and he ends the letter by reminding us that God is our keeper. So Jude, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus the Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus the Christ. Verse 1, we as his children are kept. When you get to verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. We're going to get to this verse in a couple, couple weeks. So you've got this bookend of what God does for us, but in the middle, Jude, said, Jude says, but you have to do something that keeps you in the faith. So this can raise questions. We talk a lot about how we don't earn our salvation, right? It's all a gift. So what does Jude mean by this? I like how one translator put it. He, he translates it this way. With watchful care, keep yourself within the sphere of God's love, which seems to suggest this idea that God offers us this love, and then we can make some choices with our life about whether we want to live in it and fully experience what he's offering us or not. I've talked before about how we invest sweat equity in the kingdom of God. There's, there's this sense in which God gives us the privilege of working alongside him, not to bring about our salvation, that's only something he does, but in terms of experiencing the life that's abundant and that he offers. And I think this is the idea here that Jude is talking about. A guy named William McDonald used this analogy to describe it. The love of God can be compared to sunshine. The sun is always shining. But when something comes between us and the sun, we're no longer in the sunshine. And the analogy there would be we're no longer experiencing the love of God as we could be. So it's been mentioned before from this pulpit, and it was probably Scott because it's a quote from John Calvin, that the human idol is what he called a perpetual idol factory. I wonder if we can run with this analogy of clouds to suggest that we might be perpetual cloud-generating factories, that we come to Christ, we're now part of the family, we're in, we've experienced the salvation and the love of Christ. But we have this tendency, the sin inside of us tends to generate these clouds and so we go through times in life where we're like, why is this so cloudy? Why am I not feeling the warmth of God's love? Why isn't the light illuminating things like it was before? Well, it's not because God did anything different. It's because there's something that we're generating in the process of living. I, if you've ever flown, there's these fantastic moments where you go from under the cloud cover to above the cloud cover. And if it's really bad, the moments under the cloud cover are really terrible and you're nauseous by the time you get above the clouds. But then you break through the clouds and you see the sun. If William McDonald's analogy is true, this is what he's talking about. The sun never went anywhere. It was always shining with the same strength and the same consistency and the same faithfulness. So I think this is the idea of what Jude is talking about when he says, keep yourself in God's love. Uh, simply the, the idea that 
God never changes. God's always present. God always offers these things to his children. But we as perpetual idol-making cloud factories have this strange ability to cloud the air and not experience in the moment the fullness of what God is offering to us. So, how do we clear the air? How do we stay in the sunlight of the sun? Well, Psalm 19. Let's go back to what I read as the prayer at the beginning. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives your soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy. They make you wise even if you're simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They give joy to your heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant. They give light to your eyes. The ordinances of the Lord are sure. They are altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold. They're sweeter than the sweetest thing you can imagine. At verse 11, in keeping them, there is great reward. I think the Bible is clear that we keep ourselves in the love of Christ, as Jude described, through our obedience. I'm going to give you four verses that capture this idea. 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And the next three quotes are from Jesus himself. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's John 14, 15. John 14, several verses later. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. There's something revelatory that follows the act of obedience. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Keep yourself in the love of Christ, says Jude. And here Jesus himself says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So when we remain obedient, this isn't just a demonstration of our love for God or our allegiance to God or a demonstration of our act of faith. There is something about obedience that enables us to abide in the love of God. And when we abide in the love of God, God discloses himself to us. So now let's talk about that phrase. I don't think what we're talking about in this context has to do with the kind of supernatural revelation that, for example, the Apostle Paul experienced. Because the Apostle Paul was not abiding in the love of God, but God revealed himself in that way. That actually drew him into the love of God. I think this is something different. And now I, I preface this by carefully saying I think this is something different. If I'm understanding this passage correctly, I think this is where Jude is going. I think we begin to understand the heart of God when we order our lives in alignment with the heart of God. So the revelation that follows obedience has to do with as we begin to live as God would have us live, we begin to understand something about who God is. And I'm going to give you three examples of how I think this works. Um, And hopefully this inspires you to talk amongst yourselves, not right now, about examples you might think of of where you have experienced something similar. So first example. So my wife and I didn't understand the joy of tithing until we started to tithe. So when we were first married, and for a while, it was difficult for us to um, surrender our money back to God. Just being honest here. It was very hard to do. And when we started to make steps in that direction, we're like, we think we probably ought to do this because the Bible says we ought to be giving from God's blessing to us back into God's kingdom. Uh, it was not with joyful hearts. It was begrudgingly. It's like, oh, we really need that money for something. 
And this idea that why does God make this demand on us that we give back from the blessings that he gives to us? And it just seemed really counterintuitive. Like money was already tight. This is going to make money tighter. I was already unhappy because money was tight. Now I'm going to be more unhappy. What is God thinking? He must not understand our financial situation. And so we started tithing. And it's the craziest thing that um, it turns out that it brings joy. (laughs) Who do? It's counterintuitive. Like, okay, so do you mean God had wisdom? Like when he said to his children, why don't you let go of your money and trust me? That there there was actually life that followed from that. And some of you who are older than us and have tithed for longer than that, you're probably thinking, well, it took you guys a long time to figure out. Yes, it did. But I'm realizing that the more we understand the joy of surrendering our tight hold on money and seeking to be generous as God calls us to be generous, um, it turns out it's... It's a lot of fun. It, it turns out that that was part of God's plan for abundant life for us and that we've discovered an aspect of a joy-making obedience in our life that we hadn't experienced before. And now I understand why God loves generosity because we just, at least in that area of our life, we weren't generous enough for so long that we didn't understand why this was such a big deal. And now that we're beginning to understand it, and I have a feeling this will be a process for the rest of our life, I feel like it reveals something about God. There was something revelatory in that obedience. Now I get it. Now I love why God loves to give good gifts to his children. Now I understand why he calls us to be generous in all kinds of ways, not just money. Okay, I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to understand the heart of the God who called me to do this. Does that kind of make sense as a revelation of God in the act of obedience? Uh, Here's my second one. Uh, Don't forsake gathering together. The Bible is pretty clear. As Christians, nobody's called to be a loner Christian. We're called to follow God together in community. And the more I have watched and experienced that in this church in particular, the more I'm understanding why this is so important to God, for his children to do life together, even when it's really hard. So I was making a list this week of things that have kind of bubbled to the surface, especially in the last three, four months, because these COVID months are just crappy in a lot of ways. And it's making everybody kind of raw around the edges, and so stuff's, stuff's coming up. It's bubbling to the surface, and here's what I'm seeing it is honesty and transparency and truth and boldness and love and grace and repentance and forgiveness and humility and service, and I'm seeing these things begin to click. Like, oh, oh, this is how it works. And I... Um, I have at times been brought to the verge of tears just watching uh, in a practical sense what I believe is God's vision and God's calling for his people. That is, do life together. Be real. Lock arms. Um, 
walk into all of these things. God's intending to create a new humanity among his people, this new countercultural, hope-filled vision of what happens when God's people commit to God first and then each other. And God says, don't forsake gathering together because there's something important about this. I remember back when Ted was preaching a lot, he would talk about how much he loved the church and he would tear up here on the stage. And at that time I was like, I mean, I like the church, Ted, but that's a little emotional. <laughs> um, and, and now I get it. Now I get it. And I feel like I'm learning something about God. So in this obedience of being present in a church where we do life together, where we have not forsaken gathering, where we have committed to all that hard work and all the things that God calls us to do, there's something I'm beginning to understand about God's heart for his people and for his church. Because even as I watch, I realize my heart is full as I observe God's people in his church. And I'm growing and I would like to think maturing thanks to God's people in his church, and now I'm starting to understand why God has a heart for this. So it's, it's the revelation of something important that follows obedience. I'll give you one more. This is from Matthew 5, beginning of verse 44. Jesus said this in one of his teachings. Love your enemies. Pray for those who torment you and persecute you. It's so doing this, you become children of your Father in heaven. That's a fascinating verse we could talk about a long time. In doing this, you become children of your Father in heaven. He, after all, loves each of us, good and evil, kind and cruel. He causes the sun to rise and shine on evil and good alike. He causes the rain to water the fields of the righteous and the fields of the sinner. It's easy to love those who love you, but even a tax collector can love those who love him. It's easy to greet your friends. Even outsiders do that, but you are called to something higher. So I wonder what happens if I do that. I mean, this is, this is a command, so in an act of obedience, when I am obedient to this, I am keeping myself in the love of God. God is revealing himself to me. Okay, so... Um, Love your enemies. Uh, he loves each of us, good and evil, kind and cruel. He, he gives sun and rain to the righteous and the sinner. Right? Okay, so here, I guess I have a question for all of us. Um, does Jesus love both Biden and Trump? Okay. Does Jesus love both conservatives and liberals? Does Jesus make it rain on both Gretchen Whitmer and Mitch McConnell? Does Jesus love all the Hollywood celebrities? Mm. Uh, okay, does Jesus send sun and rain to Antifa and Black Lives Matter and the Boogaloo Boys and everybody in the streets? I mean, it says good and evil, kind and cruel. He loves each of us. Hmm. What happens if I do that? What happens if as an act of obedience, because I want to remain in the love of God, and I want the revelation of who God is that follows from that, what if, what if, 
my act of obedience is commit my heart to trying to represent God in, as you can see in just my short list, a very uncomfortable world. But it's, it says love your enemies. It says pray for those who torment you and persecute you, and in so doing, you become children of your Father in heaven because he, after all, loves each of us, good and evil, kind and cruel. He causes the sun to rise and the rain to water the fields of the good and the evil and the righteous and the sinner. It's easy to greet my friends, but what about greeting my enemies? I'm called to something higher, and I just wonder what revelation follows that obedience. Uh, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. That makes me uncomfortable. There's people in the world I don't like in my flesh. But God so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to condemn the world but that the world through him might be Saved. How do I represent the heart of God in this world? And see, I, I think obedience clears the cloud cover, right? So it just makes me wonder, am I missing warmth and light from the God who continuously offers it and never changes? What kind of clouds might I be generating that are robbing me of the experience I could be having in Christ. All right, so that's, uh, that's keep yourself in God's love. That was a whole sermon, y'all, and I still got three points to go. All right, so Jude now says, keep yourself in the love of God. Then he gives three ways. Number one, build your foundation in or on the object of your faith. Depending on your translation, it might just say build your faith. It is best translated as making a focus on the object of our faith. So I'm not going to go into detail about this. Last fall, we did like an eight to ten week sermon series on our statement of faith. And that included our faith in the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, I encourage you to go back and read those notes online. I just want to note this about what Jude says here. Jude is pointing us toward the object of our faith, not our feelings of our faith. So when we talk about how we build our faith, Jude doesn't say, drum up more feelings of faith. I think what Jude is reminding us is, look to Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. Because I believe strong faith follows from appreciating the strength of the one in whom we have put our faith. So this last week I was working on somebody's house and I was using their ladder. And um, I wasn't too sure about this ladder. It was, number one, it was very lightweight, very easy to carry, which made me a little nervous because I like my ladders thick. And then second, it had been well-traveled. You could see it was pretty worn down. So I'm like, okay, and I'm having to, you know, push it up, extension ladder. Okay. And then I'm on a hill. So I'm having to turn the ladder sideways. I didn't tell Sheila about this at the time. Um, so I had to turn the ladder sideways. So at the top, like, one of the sides was about that far off the house. Um, yeah, so you can just pray for me in general. I'm not a good decision maker when it comes to ladders. 
So uh, I, I did not have strong faith in this ladder, right? Uh, and the good news is it was fine. Everything worked out. But actually, for me to kind of try to drum up faith in that ladder would have been a little silly because that ladder did not deserve my faith. <laughs> uh, that ladder was too weak for me to put my trust in, so to speak. However, I have used ladders before that I could barely carry because they were ridiculously heavy. And then I would set them on flat ground and uh, pushing them up was really difficult, which either says something about the ladder or my strength. But when I got on that ladder, I had faith in that ladder because the object was worthy of my trust. Does that make sense? I think what Jude's talking about here is if our faith is wavering, the best thing we can do is look to Jesus. Go back to the object of our faith because he can carry the weight of our faith. The second thing he says is pray with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now the verse right before that, Jude says, false teachers, they follow their mere natural instincts and they don't have the spirit, which suggests to me this is gonna have something to do with whose guidance do you follow? Do I follow myself or do I follow the spirit of God? So he says pray in the spirit, which I think is probably understood here as pray with and for holy instincts that are guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me note, there are other places in the Bible that talk about things like having a prayer language, which is what we often associate with praying in the spirit. That's a separate discussion. This isn't Jude's language. It's, Jude's not dismissing it. This just isn't what Jude is referring to, and I do have some footnotes about that. There's some... Um, there's some reasons for that. So think of this as prayer as a fruit of the Spirit, in this case in Jude, rather than prayer as a gift of the Spirit, which is discussed other places. I want to read you four short comments about what praying in the Spirit here is like when Jude talks about it, because there's a key point in each one of these. This is more than I usually read in a row, but I just want to read it kind of slowly and let it sink in. This is from Alan Wright. Only inasmuch as you know that God is your Father can you pray with intimacy rather than with religious ritual. Part of what it means to pray in the Spirit, therefore, is to pray with the help of the Holy Spirit who is constantly reminding you of your position as an heir of God. You are God's child, and as such, you are a co-heir with Christ. You can pray with the power of a child of God to a perfect Father. So that's the first part of praying in the Spirit. Michael Milton puts it this way. To pray in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to worship in the Spirit, is to come before the Lord according to his appointed means. That is, through the one whom the Spirit magnifies, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's depending on his revealed word and pleading as a lesser creature to our glorious creator. So just remembering we are coming to God through Christ. The Benson Commentary notes, by a principle of grace derived from him and by his enlightening, quickening, sanctifying, and comforting influences, showing you what blessings you may and ought to pray for, inspiring you with sincere and fervent desires after those blessings, and enabling you to offer these desires to God in faith with gratitude for the blessings which you have already received. And then finally, McLaren, praying in the Holy Ghost, that is to say, prayer which is not mere utterance of my own petulant desires, which is a great deal of our prayer, 
but which is breathed into us by the divine spirit that will brood over the chaos. I love this reference back to Genesis. This divine spirit that will brood over the chaos. I bring order out of confusion and light and beauty out of darkness and the weltering sea. The weltering sea. I don't often get to use that phrase. Okay, so just briefly, what Jude's talking about here is prayer like this. It's confident in my identity as a child approaching a perfect father. Never forget when you pray to God, you're his child. You are not perfect, but your father is. Second, it's focused on Jesus. Third, it's inspired to pray for what God desires rather than what I want. And then finally, it's remembering that the one whose spirit moved over the chaos of Genesis 1 will move over the chaos of this world and bring light and beauty and life. Final thing Jude says is wait or look for the fulfillment of the mercy of Jesus Christ. This is talking about the life to come. Very briefly, three verses. 1 John 5, 11, the testimony is this. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. John 5, 24, Jesus says, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. The Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we rest in this hope we've been given, the hope that we will live forever with our God. This is the hope that he proclaimed ages and ages ago, even before time began. So yeah, Jude's made the turn. You can keep yourself in God's love. In the midst of these false teachers in the church, these wolves, these hidden reefs that will shipwreck your faith, these creepers, all the terms he just uses, he, he clarifies how serious it is, but he says, listen, there's a solution. You keep yourself in God's love. Build your foundation on Christ. Pray with the help of the Holy Spirit. Keep an eye on the eternal mercy of Jesus Christ and know what's to come. So this is my brief summary. Keep yourself in God's love. Clear the cloud cover so you can live in the unwavering light and warmth of God's love and mercy and salvation. Number two, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Number three, pray in tune with the heart of God. Walk in the path of righteousness revealed in Scripture with the help and the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And then never forget the new heaven and earth that awaits those who are covered in his mercy. Lord, I am grateful that you're a good God. I'm grateful that in the midst of a chaotic and difficult world, uh, and, and right now, the seas are stormy in so many ways. I'm grateful that you're a God who moves over the face of those stormy waters and brings light and hope. Uh, Lord, I, I'm grateful that through the revelation of your writers of Scripture, you warned us what to look for. But you didn't just stop there. You also said, oh, but look what is offered to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we always fix our eyes on you. May we always find our foundation there. Lord, may we pray in a way, a way that reveals that we have your heart for the world. We have your mind for the world. We pray for that ongoing transformation, Lord. We, 
we long to experience the fullness, fullness of the warmth and the light of the sun. We pray this, putting ourselves into your hands and trusting in your goodness and mercy. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.